At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Good evening. I'm Robin Sessingham, host of Florida Matters and the Zest Podcast. Tonight, a special Thanksgiving program bringing you some of our favorite stories about food in the Sunshine State. There's a lot to be thankful for. First, forget Pilgrim's Pumpkins in Plymouth. The first Thanksgiving feast took place in Florida, not Massachusetts. That's according to historian Rodney Kite Powell of the Tampa Bay History Center. That first Thanksgiving occurred here in Florida 56 years before the 1621 Pilgrim Thanksgiving in St. Augustine. And it was on September 8th, 1565. It was all part of the expedition of Pedro Menendez de Aviles. There were around 800 crew members who were part of that. And so well, not just Spaniards, but people from, from all over Europe um, to, to try and uh, create a settlement in Florida, which was successful. Well, who were they having Thanksgiving with? So it was the <laughs> people that were on the ship. And then who were the Native Americans? What was the tribe then? So they, uh, they actually did invite the, uh, the Native group that was in the St. Augustine area. They're known as the Saloy. And they did take part in the ceremony. And so there's actually a description of it. That's uh, one of the priests, Father Lopez, uh, recounted later that as the ceremony was progressing, the native people uh, imitated everything that they saw the uh, the Spaniards and the other congregants doing, and so they didn't know you know what was going on because they couldn't, of course, speak the language, and they'd never seen a religious practice like that before. Um, but at least it, it appeared they were showing you know some form of respect to it by by imitating what they saw. So why didn't that become our first Thanksgiving? Why do we have the story of the pilgrims uh, instead? And that's because this was a Spanish celebration, and the uh, the Puritans and the what we think of as a traditional first Thanksgiving and the founding of Thanksgiving was English. We, the United States, grew out of the 13 English colonies. And so, the, you know, Florida history, Spanish history, even French history, those stories or just weren't maintained as the, the history of our country was being written in the 19th century. English history, uh, English stories won out in general over those, those non-English stories. Describe to me, what do you think it looked like? What, what was the ceremony like? What was that Thanksgiving like? So it, the ceremony was religious. It was a Catholic ceremony. It was actually, there was a feast day on the day that they arrived, and it was the Nativity of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And so it was a, a Catholic ceremony uh, of Thanksgiving. And they would have had a meal afterward. And since they just arrived, uh, they had the, the foodstuffs that were on board the ships for the journey across the Atlantic Ocean. And so they had hardtack, which is, you know, really, really hard crackers, basically. Kind of a stew that would have been made of uh, garbanzo beans and pork. Not, you know, like Spanish bean soup, but it was called cocido. But it was maybe kind of precursor to a, a soup that we'd be more familiar with. And they would have had red wine, and so uh, wine would have been part of it. The, the one thing that isn't known is if the Saloy actually brought food 
to the occasion. So that's you know the part of the Thanksgiving story with the Plymouth uh, colony, of course, is that they were starving and the, the native people had to had to help them. But if, in fact, there was food brought by the native Floridians, it would have included the animals that were here, uh, turkey and, and deer, and even gopher tortoise, plus lots of fish. And then there was corn here, as well as beans and squash. And so you may have had a, something that we would resemble as a pumpkin. So we might have had those some of those traditional Thanksgiving uh, foods, but what the Spanish would have brought wouldn't have been the delicious Spanish foods we think of, really. It would have been things that had made a long ocean crossing and maybe weren't so good. Exactly. So, yeah, the, 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 the offerings that the Spanish really had, and that's, again, that probably would have been the majority of, of, of a feast that they would have had on this, this particular feast day, uh, would have been the things that um, can survive a long ocean journey. So salt, pork, and, uh, and hardtack, and, again, wine uh, would have really been the main features of that table. Yeah, the wine might have been good. <laughs> well, you need that for the hardtack and the salt pork. So how long did it take from Spain? The thing with the Pedro Menendez de Aviles expedition is their intent was twofold. They wanted to, to create a permanent settlement uh, somewhere in Florida, and, and particularly on Florida's east coast. But uh, they wanted to do so because there was a French settlement near what is now Jacksonville that had been established the year earlier. So they actually came over pretty quickly, as quickly as they, they could, because they wanted to try and route out that French settlement. And so uh, I believe it took uh, a month and a half or so to cross uh, the ocean. Almost immediately after this Thanksgiving that they had, they then uh, went to war with the French here in Florida and defeated them and uh, and kicked them out of Florida and, and really reestablished Florida as a, a Spanish territory. How do we know there wasn't a Thanksgiving, a Spanish Thanksgiving before that? When was Hernando de Soto or Ponce de Leon, when were they here? So the, the, both those expeditions, and there actually were, were others, uh, did predate the um, Pedro Menendez de Aviles expedition. And so you've got the, the first credited uh, arrival in Florida of the Spanish uh, in 1513 uh, with Juan Ponce de Leon. But we do know that there were Spaniards that were here before that, but uh, we don't know who specifically. Uh, and then there was a man named Panfila de Narvaez who was actually in the Tampa Bay area in 1528, uh, followed by De Soto in 1539. And then even an attempt to settle what is now Pensacola in um, 1559. So we're, this is the, the year that we celebrate the 460th anniversary of that attempt. There may actually have been similar celebrations of Thanksgiving, but they weren't documented. This is the documentation that uh, was found actually by a former Florida historian. He's recently passed away, uh, Michael Gannon. Um, he's the one who really found the story of this first Thanksgiving in uh, St. Augustine. And did he publish it? Uh, he, he actually did. It was, um, it was published, in a, I believe, in a newspaper. And this was years and years and years ago. And it was leading up to the days of Thanksgiving like we are now. It made the national press, and he got calls from all over the country, including from uh, folks up in the Northeast, who were furious at him. Um, he was even came to be known as the, the Grinch who stole Thanksgiving, and he kind of reveled in that because I think he, he, he enjoyed 
finding out these new interesting details of Florida history that we just hadn't talked about before. That was historian Rodney Kite-Powell of the Tampa Bay History Center. When Dan Bavaro packed up his wife and kids to move from New Jersey to Florida, he did not have his sights set on opening a New York-style pizzeria. Instead, Bavaro's Pizza serves up Neapolitan-style pies, bringing a taste of Italy to its four Tampa Bay locations. He spoke to the Zest producer, Dalia Cologne. So Neapolitan pizza dates back to the 1800s, and that's famous for the margarita pizza. When uh, Queen Margarita visited Naples, the pizzeria that they visited, the Ferrara family actually built that oven. So this is the great-grandson of Stefano Ferrara. So this family is known worldwide for building these ovens. Why it's so hot is because we cook temperatures of about 850, 900 degrees. Okay, so I can't do this at home. You could do it at home if you, if you, if you trip your, your, uh, your home oven so you could cook on the clean cycle, but I wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> yeah. That's no, actually I... how I started 12 years ago, two years before we opened the restaurant. I would practice at the house and I was able to uh, rig the oven so that I could cook at 800, 850, because that's how hot your oven gets to clean. So you mentioned that you were getting started. Let's go back. How did you get into all of this? Did you grow up making pizza? No, I wasn't in the restaurant business at all. I left school, and uh, my mentor was in the catering business. We would cater movie sets. So we would go on with food trucks, movie sets in New York City, and we would cater the celebrities and the extras, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So that was my introduction to food. Uh, shortly after that, about a year with him, he had sold off his business and uh, he helped me get into the transportation business. So we would chauffeur executives and movie stars in New York City. I did that for like nine years, sold that business, wanted to get back into food, wanted to do pizza, didn't want to do like slices and New York style. I wanted something that had a little bit more passion and history. So I stumbled upon Neapolitan pizza after doing some research. There were only two in the United States at that time. One of them was in Manhattan. So I honed in on that, met the owner, spoke with the chef there and just kind of learned a little bit from him and then just did my own studies. Went to Italy, learned more, stayed with the Ferrara family, stayed with the Caputo family that we bring out. That's another hundred year old company, the flour mill that we buy from and spent like two years developing this concept. Wow, you said you did not want to do New York pizza. That's surprising. You're from New Jersey? Jersey, yeah. What was wrong with New York pizza? I thought that was what everybody wanted. Every corner, like in the United States, is a New York pizza. At, when we opened Bavaro's in Tampa, we were one of the first 15 tr traditional Neapolitan pizzerias in the United States. Let's taste what this is all about. Um, can you walk me through... What are we going to make today? Sure. So let's start with the dough. So you got some history on the oven. It's a 100-year-old oven. Cooks at uh, 850, say 900 degrees. Pizza's baking 90 seconds. 90 seconds? 90 seconds. So that dough that could survive in that type of heat has to be a special type of dough. We use a 100-year-old yeast culture. How's that Na possible? From, from Naples, Italy. So a yeast culture is a, uh, like a sourdough starter, if you're familiar with baking. So you say start your day with X amount in the tub and you feed it flour and water and there's live organisms on the inside. So after you feed it, it kind of expands. And when it expands at the highest point, you use that to make your dough. So this strain of yeast dates back 100 years to a bakery in Italy. Wow, that's beautiful. And so simple. Just sauce, simple. a little bit of cheese and some basil. That's yeah. it. 
That's it. That's the tradition. But as you can see, it resembles the Italian flag. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So Queen yeah, yeah. Margarita comes to Naples in the 1800s. There's this famous uh, pizzaiola, which is male pizza chef, wants to create a pizza for the queen. He designs this pizza, red, white, and green, based on the Italian flag, red sauce, white cheese, green basil, and named it after her. And since then, that is the start of the margarita pizza. That was Dan Bavaro speaking to Delia Cologne. What was once a vacant lot is now an urban oasis. We take you to the St. Petersburg Eco Village, a community garden whose mission is to reconnect people with nature. Dalia Cologne surveys the bounty with Emmanuel Rue, a longtime restaurateur who's using his food knowledge to educate the public about nutrition. So this is the farm. This is the farm. 15th Street Farm in St. Petersburg, in the heart of St. Pete. You really are in the heart of St. Pete, and I honestly drove around the block several times going, where is this place? And then here it is. It's like an oasis in the desert. Describe where we are, how large is the property. Paint a picture for me. Originally, nine years ago, it was uh, a vacant lot. And because they couldn't make a parking lot for Tropicana Field, the city wouldn't allow it, uh, we turned it into an urban farm. And we've uh, brought in a lot of yard waste from the city, composted yard waste. We've brought in about 300 tons. So we are recycling waste from the city and making very healthy soil. And we're growing vegetables. And it is our main mission is to be an educational resource for the community. But we're also uh, in the process of building an events barn with a commercial kitchen and we're going to have some cooking classes, field to fork dinners and nutrition classes. And what we do is uh, tasting tours of the garden and people are blown away by the number of different flavors and textures from the vegetables that they experience over 30 or 50 feet because uh, we grow a lot of things that people are not used to finding in the supermarket. Can we walk and talk? Absolutely. Okay. So here we have shishito peppers and the shishito peppers are absolutely wonderful grilled in a cast iron pan or on a grill with a little bit of olive oil. After you take them off the grill, you add a little bit of olive oil, salt and pepper, maybe a little bit of parmesan or a little sriracha sauce, and it is an absolute treat. I like that right off the bat with the cooking tips. Okay, let's <laughs> let's keep going. And, and the fresher they are, the better they are. It doesn't get any fresher than this. No, that's right. And behind you, we have some collards. Next to you... Whoa, can we just stop on the collards? The collards are like half my height. How do you get everything so robust? We don't do it. Mother Nature does it. Here, we don't grow vegetables. We take care of the soil. And nature grows the vegetables. Give me some tips for taking care of the soil because I try to grow stuff at home and it does not come out like this. Well, what am I doing wrong? Because in Florida we have a lot of sand and you need to add a lot of organic material and you need to add fungi and uh, bacteria to break it down to make the nutrients available to the plants. For people who want to start something like this in their own neighborhood, what's the first step? If you have a problem with your car, you don't ask volunteers to fix it, or there are consequences. 
if you want to start an urban farm, you can start with volunteers. That was Emmanuel Rue speaking to Dalia Cologne. You're listening to a special Thanksgiving program from the Zest Podcast on WUSF 89.7. I'm Robin Sessingham. We're taking a short break and we'll be right back. I'm Robin Sessingham, and you're listening to a special program from the Zest Podcast and WUSF that's all about food. Ed Childs is the son of the late Governor Lawton Childs. He's also the owner of several seafood restaurants, including the Sandbar on Anna Maria Island. Childs' interest in local and sustainable food sourcing has led him to experiment with cooking one of the state's invasive species, wild hogs. I spoke to him about some of the ways his restaurant chefs have been utilizing wild boars from Shogun Farms. We're doing things with, you know, wild pigs in Florida where there's a million invasive pigs. They're a problem. They're causing all kinds of problems on environmentally sensitive lands and neighborhoods and golf courses. But it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to take lemons and make limoncella because wild pig meat is fabulous. All right, the pigs came from Spain in 1539 in May with Hernando de Soto, and they were two-toed, black, Iberian pigs, which are the finest pigs in the world. So that's the strain we've got. Wait, that's the wild hogs that you see? The first wild hogs. The first 13 pigs that came to Florida came with the Spanish. There was no domestic pigs. The Europeans hadn't gotten here yet. Some of those pigs got out. The, the domestic pigs came. There was hanky-panky going on. The Russian boars came over on the land bridge. A little bit more intermixing. But our pigs, our wild pigs, that one million that are a problem in Florida have Iberian blood in them. And we've got a guy that is doing a new model for this, that is doing things with uh, these wild pigs by holding them for 60 days and finishing them on acorns. The finest ham in the world is Iberico berlata. Berlata means acorns. That's a free-range Iberian pig that eats acorns. Our pigs are eating acorns. So he's finishing those for 60 days, putting 25 pounds of that beautiful white fat on them, right? And we've just gotten it. We're playing with it. And the things our chefs are doing and their excitement level with it is off the chart. Really? Tureens, galatins, uh, wild pig braises. How are they? I know people kill the pigs. They go out and hunt them, the wild pigs, wild boars. But how do you catch it in order to finish it, to fatten it out? Well, that's one of the most exciting things you'll ever do if you're a hunter because you go out and you you catch them with, um, they run them with dogs and the dogs catch them. And then, uh, and then they bring them back alive, right? So the dogs will just grab them and hold them until the cowboys come and they put the pig in a pen and bring it to wherever it's going. Now, you know, a lot of people then too, you don't want to take that pig then because that pig is all amped up. These pigs are going back and they're sitting around for 60 days having a very nice time eating a smorgasbord, being treated very well. Are they breeding them at all during that time? or? Well, they are breeding because they're pigs, and there's boy pigs and girl pigs, and there's little pigs running around, yeah. Oh, So yeah. where is this that you're talking about? Where is this facility? It, it's called Shogun Farm, and it's in uh, Sefner, Florida. Okay, and then are you buying from them, and your chefs are making dishes from this? Yes, ma'am. What are they making? Well, one of the first things they did was a porchetta. 
they're making galatines with this. They're making head cheese that's wrapped in bok choy from the farm. It seems like they'd be too tough and gamey. That's a, that is really a, um, it's a misconception. Wild game is not gamey unless you haven't treated it right. If you shoot the right animal, that's where it starts, right? And then the most important part is cook it right. If you overcook it, you are done. You are gray, you are tough, uh, unless you're going to stew it or braise it. Cook it, marinate it with fresh herbs and garlic, and cook it rare on your grill quickly. You can always put it back on and slice it across the grain, and it's so good it'll make you slap your grandmother. That was restaurant owner Ed Childs. Many well-known local restaurants swear by the sausages they get from the Tambuzo Sausage Company of Tampa. The butchery recently opened its new location in West Tampa alongside the company's cafe, the Boozy Pig. Owner Andrew Tambuzo says it's a new chapter in what's been a very old tradition for his family in Ybor City. He spoke with me in front of the Boozy Pig on Cypress Street about changes in his new neighborhood and his business. Midtown's going to be right right down the street. We're really uh, excited about that. Yeah, so you can already feel South Tampa moving this way. We've been getting a lot of traffic from downtown as well. So, Andrew Tambuzo, why do you love sausage? <laughs> uh, it's something that I grew up doing. Um, I grew up making sausage. It's, it was something that... I never questioned why we did it because I had been doing it for so long. It's your, in your family. It is in my, on both sides. On my mom's side, um, my mom's family, the Cacciatori's on Ar- Armenia, uh, Cacciatorian sons. I grew up in that grocery store making sausage as a kid. And my grandfather on my father's side, Joe Tambuzo, he is the one that actually showed me how to make sausage. Uh, we still have all of his equipment in, in my shop on display. Uh, it's Like I said, it's just something that it was always a family hobby, passion turned into something I was doing in my dad's garage and was your dad in it too uh, oh yeah yeah my dad I would not be here today without all my dad's help making sausage has always been part of something that we did um, my grandfather it was passed down from an older generation from him his uncle gave him the re- a recipe that he in turn gave us so cacciatore I think means hunter in Italian what it is does. what does tambuzo mean tambuzo I don't know. I don't know Leave either. That part out. <laughs> that's okay. People call you Boozy. People call me Boozo or Boozy. Uh, it's his name that's been called that forever, just kind of stuck. Yeah, once I started processing, it just kind of, the name kind of came to me one day. and was like, hey, I like that name. So what's your background? Born and raised in Tampa, um, Sicilian and Cuban heritage. Uh, my parents are both from Ybor City. Uh, grew up in West Tampa and Seminole Heights my entire life. And... Um, just lucky to own a business now in, in West Tampa. Yeah, so you have had a you've had a business called Tambuzo Sausage for for a while. Yes. Um, and then you just opened up the Boozy Pig, yes. the retail outlet, right. uh, just a few months ago. Tell what's the difference between the two? The main difference is uh, that host Tambuzo Sausage Company is how we sell to restaurants, and Boozy Pig is our local storefront. But that's how we started out, uh, just making sausages. It was, um, we had customers that were my grandfather's longtime customers, their descendants would call us up, hey, you guys still making sausage? And we were out of my dad's house in the garage. And before you knew it, we had just business coming to the house to pick up sausage. Any kind of special licenses you need to make sausage in your garage? <laughs> no, I don't think they would give me one, honestly. Uh, I wouldn't even try. Um, 
I could probably get laughed at. But uh, no, it was just, it wasn't really ever intended to be my full-time job. It kind of happened that way. Uh, we started processing a lot of wild game for hunters. And we started, I had a friend of mine that got uh, promoted to chef position and they knew, she knew that we were making sausage and she started buying sausage from us and it was a great opportunity. Um, and then word spread and just now I think we sell to about 10 or 11 different restaurants around town. That was Andrew Tambuzo, owner of the Tambuzo Sausage Company. When Isabel Lasig's daughter left for college, she told her mom that the thing she'd miss most was their Sunday dinner. Eight years later, the Dunedin mother of four is the force behind Hashtag Sunday Supper, a weekly virtual dinner party where foodies share recipes and inspiration for family meals. Lasig, also known as Family Foodie, reaches millions of people through social media promoting her Sunday Supper movement. Speaking to producer Dalia Cologne, Lasig explained how families can start their own traditions. So much has changed in the last eight years. It's grown in leaps and bounds, and um, it has gone in different directions. But at the heart of it all is still our mission is, you know, to bring families together around the Sunday supper table. And we feel that if you start off as one day a week, it quickly becomes a way of life because you start seeing the benefits, not just in the food that you eat, but how your family is interacting and how it's fun to spend time together. Why Sunday dinner? <laughs> well, Sunday is the day, right, that you're regrouping. It's a little bit slower. And the whole goal is to really just get the family around the table. But Sunday just seems to be the perfect day. It's a great start to the week. You have a little bit more time. The kids are almost always home. You're not running off to football practice, soccer practice. So I just really felt that Sunday is the perfect day, you know, to have the family come together. What was your childhood like? Did you have those Sunday dinners? What memories do you have? Okay, so I am an only child, and not only am I an only child, I am an immigrant, and my parents had you know, no one else in this country. So it was really just the three of us the entire time growing up. All my cousins were back in Portugal, and so I think that was part of it was that I so wanted, first of all, a large family. I, you know, I knew since the time I was nine years old, my mom said to me, you know, how many kids do you think you have? I said, oh, I'm going to have four. <laughs> and she, so, she's like, oh, just wait till you have one. You're going to see how much work it is. You're not going to have four. And of course, the day that Riley was born, my fourth, she's like, darn it if you weren't going to prove me <laughs> wrong. <laughs> so m growing up, you know, my childhood was very different than my children's childhood, but I so wanted that sense of family and everyone being home because, you know, listen, my parents came here as immigrants. They were here to work. So again, you know, we did have our meals always. My mom cooked dinner just about every night, but it was a very different environment, you know, and I, I have no regrets. I mean, it was a great childhood, but very, very different. I was a latchkey kid, I, you know, <laughs> so I think at the heart of it all, I really wanted that for my family. And then so I think it became, because I was so passionate about it, it became so easy for me to share that part of me with my followers as we grew. Now, what does your Sunday supper at home look like these days? <laughs> I have three football players and my husband's a football coach. During football season, 
it's rare that on a Sunday we will sit at the kitchen table because we are in front of that TV. But one of our absolute favorites, probably the number one that all my kids and their friends will say is pepperoni pizza dip. So we make, you know, pepperoni pizza dip. We know that it's a football Sunday. We just really enjoy that. You know, keep it simple, grilling or sheet pan dinners that, you know, one process and the entire meal is done. That's super important for busy families. That was Isabel Lasig speaking to Dalia Cologne. Thanks so much for joining us. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving. And for more Florida food stories, subscribe for free to the Zest Podcast. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts or at thezestpodcast.com. Thanks to Christy O'Shauna for helping produce today's show. I'm Robin Sessingham. Thanks for listening. <laughs>